August 13, 1983, Starkey Swenson left his home on bicycle and set off into the Nina, Wisconsin night. His planned destination and route are unknown. What is known? He was never heard from again. Ten years later, with no trace of Swenson's body ever found, a man was arrested and charged with Swenson's murder. He maintains his innocence, but halts his 1994 trial by accepting a lesser charge and is sentenced to two years in prison. To this day, that man, John C. Andrews, refuses to admit any involvement or guilt in the crime. Starkey Swenson's body has never been found. Dr. Jordan Karsten and his team have been asked by investigators to help find the body, and with it, answers. In this podcast, we'll review the case in detail, applying today's knowledge and technology and chronicle the effort to locate and recover the lost body of Starkey Swenson. This is Cold Case, Frozen Tundra. Episode 1, Swallowed by the Night. Welcome to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten. I have a PhD in anthropology, and I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. My area of expertise is the human skeleton, and that includes excavating human burials, recognizing small human bone fragments, determining age, sex, race, and height from skeletal material, and analyzing evidence of past traumatic injury and disease. In my career, I've used this knowledge on both ancient skeletons from archaeological sites and those that are derived from forensic contexts. It's my academic background in excavating human skeletal remains that got me involved in the Starkey Swenson case. And I'm your co-host, Matt Hiskus. While in my day-to-day life, I'm a communications and media specialist, writer, graphic designer, and producer, I've always been interested in the field of archaeology and the mystery of uncovering the past. To satisfy this curiosity, I have joined Dr. Karsten on several expeditions to uncover human remains, traveling as far as Eastern Europe in search of ancient artifacts, historical evidence, and valuable skeletal data. I'm excited to once again work together applying what I've learned in these adventures, as well as my communications expertise, towards this investigation into the 1983 murder of Starkey Swenson. I'm really excited to begin this process and especially this investigation into trying to find the lost body Starkey Swenson. Doing the background research into this case, I realized just how fascinating the story is. 
I mean, there's a whole cast of characters. Their lives are tangled together through friendship, family relationships, affairs, marriages. And I think it really makes for a, an interesting investigation. Yeah, and I think what excites me most about this case is the fact that while we do have an individual who has been charged with the crime and, in fact, has served time related to it, he has claimed he's innocent over all these years. And really, the community and especially the families involved have never truly found any answers. And I'm very excited that through our investigation and ultimately our search for the missing remains of Starkey Swenson, we may help to provide some of those answers for those most closely related to this case. Yeah, I'm also excited to document for our audience this podcast how the science of anthropology and the methods of archaeology can be used to help try to recover clandestine burials. And we'll get into the science of it in terms of ground-penetrating radar, looking at stratigraphy, our methods of excavation, in order to give everybody at home an idea of how we can actually help law enforcement in this process. So Dr. Karsten, we're going to be going through this case in detail over the course of this podcast. But why don't we start by sharing a little about your work with the state of Wisconsin criminal justice system and your involvement in this, the Starkey Swenson case. All right. So after I earned my PhD, I took a job at UW Oshkosh in the fall of 2014. Almost immediately, I started receiving calls from various law enforcement agencies asking for help on cases that included skeletal remains. Most of the time, these were just situations where hikers or hunters found bones in the woods, they turned them over to their local police, and didn't really know what they were. However, I mean, unless a human skull is found, most folks don't have the anatomical knowledge to be able to tell the difference between a human and the non-human animal. And so the cops send me photos of the bones that they are in possession of, and I look for anatomical traits that allow me to determine if the bones are human or not. I get calls like this once every couple of weeks, and in 99% of the time, the bones are white-tailed deer, dog, bear, coyote, or some butchered bone that's left over from your Sunday pot roast. When human bones are found, I'm typically asked to help figure out the age of the bones, the identity of the individual, and if I can, how they died. In Wisconsin, indigenous human populations have been present for at least the past 14,500 years, and their dead are buried around the state. The physical condition of the bone, in terms of its preservation, can be a really big clue as to how old bone is. And I examine that along with other indicators to try to determine if the bones are prehistoric or modern. If they are modern, I use anatomical features to determine if they're the remains of a male or a female, how old they were at the time of death, if they're from an individual that today we would consider to be white, black, Asian, or Native American, and even how tall they were. That information we can use to narrow down a search of possible matches in a missing persons database, and then we can use some unique anatomical features present in medical records in an attempt to obtain a positive identification. My involvement with the Starkey Swenson case actually is mostly connected to my experience excavating human skeletons from archaeological sites. Most of my research is focused on ancient human skeletons, and I've conducted archaeological excavations for the past 13 years, primarily at the prehistoric site of Verteba Cave in Ukraine. There I've located and excavated thousands of human bones that date to around 3,500 BC. As an archaeologist, 
We're concerned with finding, documenting, and recovering very small bone fragments that survived the millennia, and we make sure that we leave nothing behind. That exact same approach is really useful in forensic situations. So I'm routinely asked to help locate and excavate burials for law enforcement, and I even offer continuing educational courses at UW Oshkosh on burial excavation for law enforcement personnel. Just this past summer, I conducted excavations in a burned house for the Wisconsin Department of Justice, helped lead a search for a clandestine burial on a tree farm for the FBI, and led a survey for a buried body in a farm field for the Winnebago County Sheriff's Office. The science of anthropology, and especially archaeology, has a lot to offer when it comes to finding clandestine burials. And that's how I got involved with the Starkey-Swenson case. So we're here in 2021. It's almost 40 years since Starkey Swenson first went missing in 1983. And there's a lot we know about this case, but there's probably even more we don't know. We've got no body, a man who served time in connection with the murder, strongly defending his innocence over all these years, and a case which, really, rests on the testimony of only a few individuals whose lives were all tangled together in this bizarre story. You're tasked with finding the missing body of Starkey Swenson. I'm here to help chronicle the search, and hopefully we will be settling some of the disputed facts along the way. So we need to revisit this entire case, start to finish, to identify the individuals involved, inconsistencies in stories, places each person visited around the time of the disappearance, and ultimately land on our search area for Swenson's body. Now, there is a public record of this case. Not only was it big news at the time of Starkey Swenson's disappearance, garnering local and even national attention, but it's also a case that resulted in an arrest and a trial some years later. In preparation for our investigation, we've poured over every bit of information we can find on this case, and we'll be sharing that story with listeners on this podcast. Along the way, we'll be noting the areas we'd like to pursue further. Then, we're going to take it another step deeper. We're going to interview individuals who may have some additional information for us, dig into advancements in science and technology that can help, as well as speak with experts who are also involved in the search, correct? Yep, that's right. Uh, and so for both us and everybody listening, let's dig into some of the details of this case. The city of Nina, Wisconsin is located along the west shore of Lake Winnebago, about 30 minute drive south of Green Bay, which is the city where I live. Nina is part of a long string of urban and suburban areas known as the Fox Cities, which also includes Appleton, Menasha, and Oshkosh. Together, the Fox Cities are regularly mentioned in national publications, listing the most family-friendly places to live. It's also a place where most people are Green Bay Packers fanatics. And to football fans, it's a region that is affectionately known as the frozen tundra. In 1983, Nina was similarly a quiet place perfect for raising a family. Starkey Swenson was someone who had done just that. At 67 years old, Starkey Swenson lived on Lake Winnebago with his wife Lois, to whom he had been married for 44 years. The Swensons had four adult daughters, three of whom had moved out of Nina. By his late 60s, Swenson was doing well in life, with financial stability after a successful career in sales and marketing with local papermakers Kimberly Clark and Central Paper. Following his retirement from the paper industry, Swenson became a sales associate with Raleigh Winters Realtors, a franchise of Century 21. 
His boss in 1983 described him as an exemplary employee, leading the company in commercial real estate sales, keeping voluminous records, and leading an ordered life. At 67 years old, Swenson was described by those who knew him as looking younger than his age, with a deep tan, a fit physique at 5 foot 10 inches and 155 pounds, and long sideburns. Swenson's life in Nina included community service, dances at social clubs, and quality time with his family. At their house on Lake Winnebago, Swenson could be seen swimming daily during the warm summer months, and he and Lois were regular attendees at parties at the Menasha Club, a local gathering place for folks from the middle and upper class. Swenson's social circle was large and included people he worked with as a member of both the Nina Plan and Parks and Recreation Commissions, on which he served for 14 years. As chair of the Parks and Recreation Commission, Swenson helped Nina purchase two new parks. Swenson also served on Nina's United Way, on the Church Council for St. Paul's Lutheran Church, and he did charity work for the city's Bergstrom Art Museum. If you would have mentioned Starkey Swenson to people in Nina in 1983, those who knew him would have said that he was kind, generous, and conscientious. Heading into the late summer of 1983, Starkey Swenson appeared to have it made. He had a mix of professional success, leisure, and an active social life. That all changed sometime after 8.30 p.m. on August 13, 1983. During the day, Starkey and Lois had gone on a family picnic to Elkhart Lake, a picturesque Wisconsin village with a namesake lake famous for its blue-green water. At some point during the outing, Starkey and Lois end up having an argument, which we know from a report provided by the Swenson's daughter. Elkhart Lake is about an hour's drive from Nina, and they returned home around 8 p.m. By 8.30, Starkey had hopped on his rust-red bicycle with a basket on the front and pedaled away from home. He's wearing a light blue and tan striped short sleeve shirt, white slacks, and white deck shoes. Starkey Swenson was never seen again. According to his wife Lois, Starkey would often go out in the evening on his bicycle, but he'd always be home before 10.30 p.m. So when he did return home on the night of August 13, his family started to worry. On Monday, August 15, at 12.30 p.m., the Swenson's daughter Jan, who lived in Milwaukee, reported her father missing to the Nina police. She said that she believed her father had left on his bicycle to visit a friend on Congress Street, only a few blocks from the Swenson's home. Police were dispatched to question Starkey's friend, only to find that he hadn't seen Swenson on the night of August 13. The city of Nina assigned two detectives full-time to the case, Lieutenant Eugene Bricko and Detective Ronald Doro. Bricko and Doro interview and re-interview everyone they can find that could potentially be connected to Swenson's disappearance. They also keep an eye on Swenson's bank account and credit cards, including one from Hertz Rent-A-Car. A month after Swenson's disappearance, he hadn't withdrawn any money or used any credit. Rico and Doro admitted to the Appleton Post-Crescent newspaper that they were baffled and that their investigation had gone nowhere. 
As the detectives put it, 29 days into their investigation, and they hadn't had a single promising lead. It seemed that as fast as the investigation started, it seemed to run into a dead end. To his friends and family, the disappearance of Starkey Swenson was totally out of character. His wife and daughters couldn't believe that he would leave for days without notifying them of his whereabouts. So at this point, we're a month in since anyone has last seen Starkey Swenson. We've got a well-known, well-liked member of the community who has seemingly vanished into thin air and no major leads to investigate. Yeah, that's right. There was a single report that Swenson had been spotted in Chicago, but that lead didn't go anywhere. A salesman from Nina who had seen news coverage of Starkey Swenson's disappearance contacted the police in the late summer of 1983, saying he saw somebody he thought looked like Swenson board a Republic Airlines flight at O'Hare International Airport but his name wasn't on any of the flight registers. Plus, Starkey hadn't accessed any funds to pay for a ticket. According to his family, Swenson wasn't the type to have much money on him. They estimated he had 50 bucks at most, and he didn't have his checkbook when he left on his bike. Probably the O'Hare sighting was simply the case of the Nina salesman noticing somebody who looked semi-similar to Swenson. Yeah, I could see how that could be the case. So with the exception of our possible sighting in Chicago, One month after Starkey Swenson goes missing, the police are essentially out of leads. And that all changes on September 11, 1983, when Carl Staffold, a janitor at Shattuck Junior High in Nina, contacts the police with information that he thinks might be connected to the case. Like almost everyone else in Nina, Staffold was aware of Swenson's disappearance, and he knew that he had last been seen riding his red bike. Around the time Swenson disappeared, Staffold had found red bicycle parts in a grassy alcove on the side of the school. He reports this to the police. He also lets them know that, unfortunately, he was unaware of a possible connection to the case at the time the parts were discovered, and he threw them in a dumpster. When the detectives get to Shattuck Junior High, he shows them a 71-foot-long gouge in the pavement, which is continuous with a 94-foot-long mark in the grass, both ending in a broken tree. To the detectives, it looks like these could have been caused by something being dragged by a car along the ground. So, they end up removing pieces of the curb in the blacktop, and they send it to the crime lab in Madison for analysis. Now, we've got to remember this is 1983. DNA technology hadn't been developed anywhere near what we have today. The point of removing the blacktop and curb was to look for evidence of blood and paint and metal that might have been left behind from Swenson's bike if it was dragged. But the crime lab found no evidence of blood, and even though there was a red streak on the parking lot, it wasn't consistent with bike paint. So evidence-wise, at least initially, the finds are somewhat unclear and don't, at least at the time, seem to help the police with the case moving forward. There was another interesting development around the same time that Staffold contacted the police about the bike parts he found. Lois Swenson applies on September 21, 1983, to a Winnebago County court, and she asks it to help settle Starkey's estate. Yeah, this seemed pretty interesting to me, too. Swenson hasn't been declared legally dead yet, which typically happens sometime around six to seven years after someone's gone missing. In this case, Lois Swenson wasn't looking to have Starkey declared legally dead. She was just looking to have a receiver declared to take charge of his business, financial, and legal affairs. I think it seems most interesting because it occurred less than two months from the date that Starkey disappears. 
I don't know all the possible reasons someone would do this, but it certainly seems like Lois no longer believes Starkey has any chance of returning home. Not exactly a vote of confidence that he's alive at this point, despite only minimal progress made in the police investigation. This is probably something we'll need to investigate further as we work our way through this case, in hopes of identifying who might have some information on possible locations of the body. So not too much happens between September 21, the date Lois Swenson applies for the court to settle Starkey's estate, and late October 1983. A little over a month goes by, and then, quite suddenly, something interesting happens. The police execute a search warrant on John C. Andrews, another local resident, and they take his car, a 1973 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, into impound at the crime lab. So Dr. Karsten, this seemingly comes out of nowhere, or at least it's a surprise to everyone outside of the police force. Andrew's name hasn't really come up publicly at all in this case. What do we know about him and about his potential involvement? Yeah, I mean, we've heard absolutely nothing, at least in the press, about Andrews at this point. We can only assume that a tip or a witness statement gives police enough cause that he's involved that they're able to obtain a search warrant. What we do know about Andrews is he's a pretty interesting guy, especially for somebody living in Nina, Wisconsin in 1983. John C. Andrews is a 44-year-old British national who works as an airline inspector for KC Aviation, which is a company that specializes in maintaining corporate aircraft. He's apparently quite well off financially. He drives a Pontiac sports car. He's also known for traveling around the world. Andrews is divorced from his wife, Claire Andrews, who he met just two years before while he was traveling in India. The two were married in mid-July 1982, but Claire filed for divorce just six weeks into that marriage. Now, at this point in the case, we don't really know much about why the police are interested in John Andrews, what evidence they have against him, what others have told them, or what they're looking for with their warrant. We know they've got convincing enough information to get a judge to sign that warrant, and we know they've taken his car. So tying this to a few other bits of information, they impound John Andrews' car, and we also know that Carl Staffold, the Shattuck Junior High janitor, showed the police possible bike and or vehicle gouges in the pavement at the school. It's possible this has something to do with their interest in Andrews' Firebird. Another interesting fact is that Claire Andrews, John's ex-wife, lives directly across the street from the school where the bike parts and gouges were found. But despite all this, nothing really comes about as a result of the warrant executed on John C. Andrews' vehicle, at least not publicly. We really don't hear much more about it. In fact, we don't really hear much of anything at all in this case until 1984. Now, we don't hear a lot about it publicly, but on January 12, 1984, the state conducts a John Doe proceeding on the Starkey Swenson disappearance. A John Doe proceeding is a unique element of Wisconsin law, which allows investigators to file a complaint with the judge stating that there's reason to believe a crime has been committed. There's no jury, and the outcome of the hearing does not lead to arrest or imprisonment. Instead, the judge rules whether there's enough evidence to say, that a crime has been committed, and in some cases, whether there's enough evidence to charge an individual with the crime. If the state then decides to charge that person, the case must still go through standard preliminary hearings in court before the accused is bound over for trial. You might wonder why the state would conduct a John Doe proceeding if the outcome really only tells you the same information that you'd learn at a preliminary hearing. 
whether or not there's enough evidence to have a trial. But there are some interesting advantages of a John Doe hearing. Yeah, that's right, there are. In a John Doe proceeding, there are really two unique benefits for the state. First, this is a proceeding in front of the court. That means the state has the ability to subpoena witnesses who might not otherwise be willing to provide details on the case. They can ask for witnesses to a potential crime, or even the individual possibly connected to the crime, to provide information, documents, or any other evidence to the court. If they refuse to comply, the court can compel the testimony under threat of contempt of court. The second benefit for the state is, unlike a typical jury trial, the state is not required to disclose its evidence to the defense team. There really is no defense team since no one has been charged with a crime. Because of this, the state has the ability to gather evidence it might not otherwise have been able to obtain without having to tip its hand, so to speak. So the state files a complaint to the court for a John Doe hearing in the Swenson case, and they're calling the proceeding with John C. Andrews as their person of interest. Now, we only know about this hearing because it comes up at a later date. John Doe proceedings are typically kept secret from the public, but we're discussing it now as if it's the timeline of this case. So they're looking into John C. Andrews. They've got his vehicle at the crime lab. They've got whatever other information was given to them, which prompted their search warrant in the first place. And now they've got the ability to sit Andrews down in court and ask him to testify under oath. And the state asks him all about the night of Swenson's disappearance. Under oath, Andrews insists that he did not see Swenson that night. He does tell investigators that he was at the home of his ex-wife, Claire Andrews, on the night that Starkey disappeared, but that he left her home in the evening and went to a bar near Omro, Wisconsin, which is about a 30-minute drive away. It's also in this John Doe hearing that we learn a neighbor reported seeing Andrews thoroughly cleaning his car the day after Swenson disappeared. In response to this, Andrews testified initially that he doesn't believe he cleaned his car. Then he says that maybe he did because he picked up a hitchhiker with dog poop on his foot. And that's about the extent of the information we learned from the John Doe hearing. As you mentioned, we only even know this much after it's revealed during a later trial. We can assume, though, that either the judge ruled there was not enough evidence to prove a crime had been committed, or that the state determined its case was too weak as no charges are filed following the John Doe proceeding. In July 1984, Lois Swenson and her family do something else that was somewhat unusual. They announce their plans to hold a funeral service for Starkey Swenson, despite the fact he is yet to be missing for a year and the court has not ruled him legally dead. As you mentioned earlier, per Wisconsin law, unless there's evidence proving foul play, a missing person can't be legally ruled dead until that individual has been missing for seven years. When asked about this, Lois Swenson states, quote, In our hearts, we know he's dead. And she cites the many family and community members who have attested to it being entirely out of Starkey's character to disappear of his own free will. The funeral takes place at the family's church on July 16th. I mean, I can see why they would want to have the funeral service. The family was looking for closure, and as you mentioned, his disappearance was totally out of character, which led them to believe that he must be dead. According to some news reports from the time, it also seems like the funeral service was aimed at helping to end the spread of rumors, including that Starkey had run away to a new life. According to his family, at the time, they felt like they were in an awkward situation. The police had asked them not to comment on the search for Starkey, but people had questions. 
By holding a funeral service, it seems the family was hoping to put it all behind him. It really is a horrible thing to consider. This family had lost all hope of finding Starkey, and they needed a way to end this chapter of their lives. Yeah, that's a really good point. The family is in an extremely tough situation here. Of course, somewhere in their hearts, they're harboring some small sliver of hope, but also they're realizing that they do need to get some closure in order to have any chance of moving on. And as you point out, this is a small community. An event like Starkey's disappearance is a massive local news story, and it's prone to speculation and rumors on an incredible scale, especially as time continues to go by without a trace of his body or his whereabouts. In the midst of all this, little events do keep cropping up in the case that provide some hope of shedding new light on what happened, but none of them seem to go anywhere. For instance, on November 30th, 1984, human remains are found in McQuanago, Wisconsin, a suburb of Milwaukee roughly two hours south of the Swenson's home. After a sketch artist produces a rough estimation of how the individual may have looked in life, police are notified the remains show similarities to Starkey Swenson. Okay, so I'm looking at this artist's rendering, and I've got to be honest with you, I have no idea what they see that looks at all like Starkey Swenson. Yeah, I 100% agree. So the police head down to McQuanago to investigate the remains, and they learn pretty quickly that there's almost no chance that they could be the body of Starkey Swenson. The forensic examiner in Milwaukee comes back with a report that the body's likely been in the brush for two to three years, and Starkey's been missing for just over one year at this point. There's still a pretty big margin of error when it comes to trying to determine time since death, as other factors could impact the condition of a body that's been exposed to the Wisconsin elements. But this seems to indicate an unlikely possibility that it's a match. Additionally, Measurements were taken of the remains that revealed the individual was likely around five foot seven inches tall. And all the reports on Starkey Swenson show that he's either five foot nine or five foot ten. The final and confirming element that we're not dealing with Starkey Swenson's remains were a dental exam, which indicates the McQuanago individual appeared to have lower jaw dentures, which Starkey Swenson just didn't have. These are the types of little possibilities police investigate throughout the course of a missing person case. Normal police work. But they're also the types of little elements of hope that take a toll on the family and on the community. Since this is such a large case, the local news jumps all over any possible lead. There are multiple reports about a possible connection between the bodies. And you've got to imagine this, and others like it, get people pretty excited before they eventually receive the final word that there's not a link in the cases. Yeah, so for the next several years, it's really just these little leads that we hear reported in the case and nothing ever comes to them. There are reports of another possible connection to a body found all the way in New Jersey, which is then disproved. There are even some stories passed around that the police are receiving tips submitted by psychics. It gets to the point that the police respond in the media to state that they're not interested in hearing so-called psychic evidence. It's fair to say that the Starkey-Swenson case is officially cold. It's important to note at this point that the case is still a missing persons investigation. The police have stated in interviews that foul play has not been ruled out, and we also know they held a John Doe proceeding earlier that year. But Swenson's disappearance has not been officially classified as a murder or the result of any other criminal action. This is noteworthy, as it might help explain the next six years. It's not that the case is closed. We know the police continue to revisit it from time to time and when new facts emerge. 
But we also know, based on the classification, that they may not be dedicating the same level of resources and time that might be diverted to solve a murder in the county. We of course can't say this for sure, but I do think it's worth mentioning. What we can say for sure is that not much emerges in the case at all between late 1984 and November 1990, six years later. When you look at media coverage, police notes, and statements by the police, it's clear that the case is open but stagnant. In fact, in a 1988 report on unsolved cases, Detective Ron Doro states, quote, there haven't been many calls in the past year or so, end quote. On November 19, 1990, just over seven years since Starkey Swenson went missing, a Winnebago County judge officially declares him dead in accordance with the Wisconsin statute from 1872, which requires a seven-year waiting period before a missing individual can be presumed dead. As part of the proceeding, Detective Ron Doro highlights that the case had been covered by two national television programs specializing in finding missing persons, all with no result. When asked if he thinks Starkey Swenson is alive, Doro responds, quote, it is my belief that he is not, end quote. It's now August 1993. Three more years have passed with no updates, and we've reached the dawn of a new decade in the Swenson investigation. Winnebago County District Attorney Joseph Paulus marks the 10-year point by stating, quote, It's still an open case. If any new leads surface, we'll respond accordingly. He later points out that while a detective is still assigned to the case, quote, With the passage of time, there's less work for that investigator to do. Little does everyone know, in less than a month's time, everything will change. On September 16, 1993, 10 years and 34 days after Starkey Swenson went missing, John C. Andrews is arrested and charged with his murder. Join us next time as we investigate this sudden break in the case and hear more details from the night of August 13, 1983. Do you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story? Visit our website at frozentundrapodcast.com and be sure to follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind the scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real time investigation progresses. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay.